1: Welcome to the Deconstructionist Podcast. I'm your host John Williamson, and I'm back with our friend Rabbi Brad Hirschfield. Uh, we've got an ongoing series. If you've been following along, uh, so last week we touched on the story of Cain and Abel, and this week we kind of wrap that up and continue on with the story of the flood. And um, I've really enjoyed these these conversations. I hope you have too. I just think it's so important uh, to really um, reach out and get perspectives from literally the, the Jewish people. Whose uh, stories these are, and uh, and and these stories were written by, uh, by by Ju- the Jewish people, and so I, I think it's so important when we look at these rich and beautiful texts, uh, to, to get perspective, um, you know, as often as we can, um, I, you know, a lot of us grew up hearing a lot of these stories uh, through the Christian lens, and so I think there's some additional beauty to be found there, and hopefully you guys have uh, been enriched and have enjoyed this series so far, so. I am certain uh, Rabbi Brad will be back in the future and we'll continue to to cover more stories within the Old Testament. Um, always have fun. Uh, there's some additional content. Um, we kind of went longer than normal. Uh, we had some technology issues during recording. Um, I think the sound came together fine and uh, I was able to kind of piece it together through editing. Uh, but we went a little longer than normal. So um, in order to cut it into two... Uh, bite-sized episodes um, where it wasn't running too long, I did have to cut a piece at the beginning that I do intend on releasing um, that uh, we just talked about sort of what's going on in Israel and Palestine. I think, um, you know, he's got some some perspective. Um, he's got family who literally are serving in the Israeli army and special forces who are in harm's way. Uh, but we talk about the impact Uh, To both the Israeli people and the Palestinians and um, the horrors of war and um, and uh, sort of the collateral damage that that occurs anytime there is a conflict. So uh, so I will release that. And um, uh, but just in the sake of 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 continuing with the series and the flow and, and keeping it under an hour. Uh, so that way it's not too long. Um, I, I have to section that out. So uh, more to come next week. I'll be back with a brand new guest and a brand new topic. I'm very excited for uh, several of the uh, guests coming up in the very near future. So uh, leading up through Christmas and the holidays here, I uh, got a very cool topic to cover uh, starting next week. So uh, very excited for you guys to hear uh, some of those. And um, like I said, we'll we'll bleed over into the new year a little bit, uh, which is unusual for us, but uh, and then i 'll take my my uh, my little break to to record for the next season, but also working on uh, a series that 's going to take some some time and effort uh, that will not uh, uh, prevent uh, me from from releasing new episodes uh, right around the same time frame we normally do, uh, but uh, just know that working on some interesting content in the background, so more to come on that as I have more information, um, sort of in the research stage right now so more to come. Also, good news. Uh, I have finally found a, uh, a company to sort of take over the the merch uh, section. So there is a new merch link in um, in the 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 link uh, page that we've got there. Uh, the Linktree link. Uh, there's a new merch page. Uh, it's through Printify, and um, I'm slowly but surely getting all of the original designs loaded up into there. But what it's going to do is it's going to offer way faster shipping it's direct to print and so um, i've ordered a couple test batches and fiddling around i'm I'm not real uh, i'm not super happy with the t-shirts yet uh, but we'll get them there Uh, but there's a lot of other merchandise options that we're able to provide Um, hats and hoodies and all sorts of things Um, the usual stuff coffee cups pint glasses the t-shirts but now we've even got tank tops and mouse pads and all sorts of stuff so check it out if you're interested we've got some new designs up there as well um, including some quote shirts uh, from over the years Um, but lots of new options uh, to be to be found Um, and much much faster shipping like i said Um, it's uh, gotten here within about a week maybe less uh so pretty pretty quick, and the other cool thing is for the first time we 're able to offer international shipping so no matter your, where you 're listening from in the world, um, you should be able to order from the site so definitely would love uh some feedback on if you like it or if there 's certain things you 'd like to see uh, please let me know uh, and um, definitely willing to to make some some tweaks there and try to keep the costs as low as humanly possible so uh very excited to launch that uh like I said, the link is in our link tree link. Uh, in the uh, bio and on our and through our social media and our website as well so find it anywhere uh there so all right without further ado let's get to it this is uh part four or part six depending on how you're following along here <laughs> with dr rabbi brad Hirschfield. do
2: you To water I am treading,
1: now yeah, I like so. that. And the other thing, too, I, I kind of want your opinion on as well, is one of the things that's interesting about this story that I think I've always found fascinating is is in God's sort of reaction. You know, it, it's even God seems to understand, which seems to be a theme throughout uh, a lot of the biblical stories, is the fact that um, God seems to understand that violence begets more violence. And so he could have just smited, you know, Cain off the face of the earth, but yet he doesn't. As you said, he protects, protects Cain.
3: Yeah, I I think, you know, that's the interesting thing. I completely agree with you that violence generally does beget more violence. If I'm also allowed to say that doesn't always mean it's not appropriate. Like, I feel like the people who know that sometimes, and I admit I'm not a pacifist, I don't think this tradition is pacifist. (laughs) I don't apologize for that, because in an imperfect world, I think there are times that imperfect means are called for. What I think is interesting is that the people who often know that violence may be necessary don't often appreciate it. it may be necessary, but it's a really poor solution. Mm. That even if it's necessary in the immediate term, it's going to bite you in the behind because it typically begets more. And that the people who understand that violence tends to beget more violence often end up using that awareness as an excuse not to fight for anything at all. And that concerns me. Because typically the thing they advocate not fighting for is someone else's suffering. But if someone came to burn down their house, they'd fight like hell. Hmm. So I think you're right, and I think that God wrestles with that story. And I, I you know, I don't know if we're going to do it today, or I mean, in a subsequent session. I think that turns us right toward the story of Noah and the flood, and that's not just people who wrestle with that impulse to destroy everything when it goes wrong. God is still wrestling with that impulse to destroy everything when it goes wrong. <laughs> and, and I think the trick is, if we can imagine that if God wrestles with the impulse, it's not surprising that we do. And if it's a real wrestling match, it means if we're inclined to think, yes, you got to destroy it all, give yourself a moment to wonder, maybe not. And if you think that nothing ever needs to be destroyed, give yourself a moment to think it may be tragic,
4: but sometimes certain things do need to be destroyed. Hmm. That's what a real wrestling match is. Yeah,
1: Yeah, that's good. I I like that. And it's also not to say that uh, repercussions aren't necessary you know, or or, or uh, a punishment right. isn't necessary.
3: Right. Right. It's exactly right. It may be necessary. It doesn't make it's not tragic. Right? right. You know, it's, it, the fact yeah. that it's necessary doesn't mean, oh, okay, then I don't have to worry about it. No, no, no. Right. It may be necessary, and you really may have to worry about it. <laughs> the truth is, I can tell you, no decent person ever went to war. No matter how just the cause. And didn't pay a price for it. Mm. The price may be buried. We may work our whole lives to avoid it. (laughs) And it's important to know the fact that we pay a price does not mean we're feeling guilty for what we did. It may be a just cause. But that is the nature of understanding that even when you do the right thing and you do it the best possible way,
4: there's still a cost if it involves harming other people. And and it, it doesn't make us weak
3: to admit that. In fact, I would argue it makes us better
4: and more ethical combatants who are slower to fight. Quicker to find peace, but
3: unafraid of fighting when absolutely necessary. And in our imperfect world, that seems to be the triangle in which we all need to locate ourselves. Slower to fight, not refusing to fight, slower to fight, quicker to find peace, and being
4: willing to fight when the first two are truly impossible.
1: Yeah, well said. Yeah, unfortunately, we live in a world where, you know, uh, Hitlers have existed, and, uh, you know, and and you can't, uh, there are certain situations like that where, you know, arguably, if we had reacted more quickly, you know, more lives could have been spared.
3: Right. And, and, And by the way, I do want to at least nod in the direction of traditions that are pacifist, right? I mean, I have Buddhist friends would say, that's very nice talk, Brad. But the fact is the violence has to end somewhere. (laughs) And how do you know this is the moment it has to end with you? And my response is, you may be right, but I don't see the world that way. And I can't see the world that way. If only because the track record of people who claim to see that world, the world that way, almost always end up willing to fight when it's there behind on the line which kind Mm. of puts the lie to the whole thing, right? If someone starts their argument for pacifism saying, my family has been murdered and burned and raped, but I chose not to respond with violence. Again, I think they're crazy, but I have real respect for that because that's an authentic expression of real pacifism. Again, I don't think it's the way to go, but no one can argue with that. Because when you're willing to bear the brunt of that for which you advocate, it may be a wrong decision, but it's not an unethical decision. Mm. But I admit, it's not mine, and I wouldn't be a pacifist, and I think the Hitler example is well chosen, because we know, as a matter of historical fact, that there were Christian theologians who talked about the appropriateness of taking violent action against Hitler, and they ultimately decided, no, we don't, we don't really think we should do that. And I understand two things. I'm sure they were well-intentioned. And they were terribly wrong.
4: Mm. So we yeah. tend
3: to figure out that we were wrong, but usually after other people have suffered. And that's a yeah. little too late for my liking.
1: Yeah, Yep.
3: So we have going to be out on the hook and to get yeah. it wrong and then to live with the price we pay for taking strong action. I don't know any way around that.
1: Yeah. And we have to learn from history. You know, as a history buff myself, like you know, we we have to take these examples you know throughout history and learn from our forefathers and our foremothers and and hopefully do better the next time and yet sometimes there are certain lessons we seem to not learn very well. <laughs> I mean, again, this goes back to what
3: the power of all these stories in the Bible is. I think it's because they have to keep being relearned. I, I, I think that's what means yeah. to be human, right? I would like to believe there is a piece of me, mm-hmm. you know, a little bit magical thing. Oh, no, we'll get it. and That'll be the end of it. But then I would be betraying the power of having unanswered <laughs> questions, right? if we really believe the questions are unanswered. If where are you is unanswered, if i my brother's keeper unanswered, is because we are always being called and recalled to re-answer it. And I guess what I would say is my more realistic hope is we'll never answer it finally and totally, but hopefully in each re-answering, we're re-answering at a somewhat higher level, a somewhat more evolved level, a somewhat more compassionate level. But I think we'll probably have to keep re-answering these questions in every generation.
1: Yeah, (laughs) I think you're right. (laughs) So, so do you want to get into the the, the flood? I if think that's If we think one the that's... internet
3: will be good to us, I, I, I have <laughs> I, the, I have the time, and we certainly can. So that's if it works. Sure. Yeah, we may as well see if we can knock it out, and then especially if we can switch over to phone, you know, for part of it. If that'll actually give you the audit, you know, the the audio quality you need, we can switch over to that as a backup. But yeah, why don't we, Let's you give know, it a shot? Yeah, why don't we start? <laughs> All
1: right, um, sounds good.
3: So, I mean, let me start by asking you a question. If I were to say to you in the circles that you move in, spiritually, intellectually, religiously, whatever, what's the story of Noah and the flood about?
1: <laughs> wow. Um, yeah. I'm trying to think back and, and 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 where I like to pull from is sort of the Vacation Bible School versions of these stories because i think a lot of people like unfortunately within the christian circles tend to uh stick with those versions of the stories and never evolve past it into the land of like metaphor and um you know and, and that sort of thing um so i think the the version that i was taught growing up probably like a lot of listeners was that you know god was unhappy with with the way that the world had, had kind of drifted. And so wanted to start from scratch and hit the reset button, but wanted to save, you know, this, this family, uh, who had, who had been, uh, the good people, you know, and, and, and let's rescue some of the animals and, and we'll have a, a small population for which to, uh, to repopulate the earth after we wipe out all the evil and the, and the, the sickness and all the evil and, um, and we'll start over. And that's sort of the version that, that, uh, We were born and raised with
3: (laughs) yeah i mean i think that's i so i think that is right what's interesting to me is the way it really does pick up on the themes that we've talked about you know before about this issue of constantly to re-ask and re-answer these eternal questions and that even god is struggling with the impulse to double down on the very (laughs) thing that creates the problem so we're kind of all in this together So much so that if you look in in Genesis chapter 6, and it's kind of the, the, the precursor to the story, the Lord saw how great was humans' wickedness on earth, and how every plan devised by people's minds was nothing but evil all the time. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on earth, and his heart was saddened. We have two more verses, and we'll come back. The Lord said, I will blot out from the earth the men whom I created, men together with beasts, creeping things, and birds of the sky. For I regret that I made them. But Noah found favor with the Lord. So, let's go slow. First of all, I think for a lot of people, God has regret. If we've been told that God is this all-knowing being, then how can that God have regret? Regret is predicated upon the idea that I thought it would go one way, it went another way, and now I feel bad about it. Now, I don't know about you, but that's not the God most of us were introduced to as children. (laughs) right a God and I think it's fascinating because we're not talking about some analytic book this is the Bible itself seems comfortable describing a God who is able to have regret and there's I, I think that question right whether it's about God or it's about us, is not whether we have done things that we regret, but when we do things we have regretted, what then? See, that to me is what the, the whole story is about. Because if God can have regrets, then surely we can have regrets. Right? If God is God and entitled to experience, oops. <laughs> then surely we are. And that really, from the very beginning, I think what this story is inviting us to imagine is not that if you have regrets, you should, you know, think, oh, oh God, because what does God say? Oh, me? I really messed up? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not trying to be glib, but it's, it goes all the way up if you think of God that way. And the story is willing to say that God, God's self has regret. So listen, human, you're going to do things you're going to have regrets about. Right? (laughs) Because according to this story, it's not only what it means to be human, apparently it's what it means to be God. (laughs) And yet with that, then the question isn't not whether or not we do things we regret. But what do we do when we've done things we regret?
4: Right? Because we we're all gonna be in that place.
3: And I think that the flood story ultimately is even if the one who we've always been told has all the power, knows everything, can see everything, even that one can go, Whoops. I feel sad.
4: <laughs> yeah. I
3: look at my life
4: as creator and master of the universe. And I'm sad. Because this didn't work out the way I would have hoped. And I don't know about you, but I don't know a person who hasn't had that experience. So once you know we've all had that experience, I guess you could make people feel
3: terrible about having done something they now regret. But that's not what this story does. Instead, this story opens up with the character who's supposed to be beyond the capacity for regret, having regret. So, And then saying the real question is not, have you done something you regret? It's now that you're confronting that which you regret.
4: How do you want to deal with it? What do you want to do about it? And that's important because even to ask that question, what do you
3: want to do about it, suggests there are things you can do. That Mm -hmm. oftentimes I think when we feel regret or remorse, like, well, it happened, What, what can I do? And we wallow in that powerlessness. And the story says, no. You can have real regret. And, you know, forgive me, it sucks. It's painful. God is sad. We are sad when we've done the things we regret. I wish my life had gone a different direction. I regret this, and I feel bad about that. That's fine. You can. But don't pretend there aren't things you can do now. And so from the very beginning, I think, the flood, which is often read as this story of pure unbridled rage, on the front end, it's not. It's set up by the fact that, yes, we may feel those things, but there are things we can do there are choices that we can make. And in fact, that's even in the description because God looks out and says, I I made humanity on the earth and, you know, they were lousy from the beginning. (laughs) And I regret that I made them.
4: But Noah, I like Noah. (laughs) I like him. And I, I think that
3: that's, A really important thing because to imagine that even in the midst of our regret, we tend to say, oh, I regret it all. Slow down. It feels like everything about whatever the it was was wrong. But here maybe we can be like God. Is there anything in that messed up deal you can still identify. I like that. Right? Most of it, colossal mistake.
4: (laughs) But I like that.
3: And I wonder, could I rebuild from there?
4: Hmm.
3: So I think from the very beginning, the flood story is a story of wrestling with the first impulse, wipe it all out taking a breath in the midst of our regrets,
4: saying, can I find anything in that relationship, in that job, in that structure that I did like? And if I can, maybe I can rebuild from that.
1: I think and you I, just I, nailed a perfect analogy for a lot of the <laughs> listeners out there and their and their former faith lives and, and why they've gravitated towards this podcast. Mm. They oftentimes grew up in a very um, damaging form of religion. Um, and so we, we always have said since the beginning of time, uh, since the beginning of time, since the beginning of the podcast seven years ago, that maybe, maybe slow down a little bit. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater because part of part of our logo even, and we did this intentionally, was within the term deconstruction, we put brackets around the D and the E so that there's right. construction. Right. Yeah.
3: I love that. I remember the first time I noticed, <laughs> I was like, okay, I'm sold. <laughs> I oh, love really. that you
1: noticed that. That's great. Um,
3: yeah, and I think the interesting thing is that we have to be able to do that. Hmm. Now, I get it. There are times when, no, nothing good can be found there. And, and I can't be so arrogant to say, well, if there's really, really, really nothing, you still have to go back. No, that, that's not fair. That, that really seems kind of cruel, actually. But most of us, most of the time, can actually find. I mean, again, we're talking about one person among the whole human race. So it doesn't have to be a lot, but it turns out that that little bit, that one guy, and then we're going to see in a little bit his family,
4: you can actually rebuild an awful lot from that little spark. And I think the idea of I feel terrible about it, and for legitimate reasons, it was really bad,
3: doesn't, is not the same as every last thing there was bad. And I think actually one of the gifts we can give ourselves in coping with those kinds of regrets is to say, you know what? The most empowering thing I can do is to find that bit of it that actually did
4: work, get rid of all the rest of it, and build from that piece that worked.
3: And by the way, any question about how imperfect that little piece that work can be. You have this phrase in verse 9 of chapter 6. This is the line of Noah. Noah was a righteous man. He was righteous in his generations. Now, I don't know, I don't recall any Christian commentators picking up on that strange phrase, right? That he was righteous and righteous in all of his generations. But Jewish exegesis, Jewish commentary on it, sees two famously divergent understandings of what that, (laughs) when he was righteous in his generations, as opposed to when. (laughs) (laughs) And so one school of Jewish thought is he was so righteous that even surrounded by all of these awful people, he was really righteous, that he was like so perfect in that way, that he was beyond being influenced by all the terrible things that he swam amongst. But the other school of thought is kind of the opposite In the context of the awful people he lived with, he looked okay. <laughs> he was righteous in his generation. But if he had lived in the generation of really righteous people, he'd be nothing special. <laughs> and I think that that last I like one that. is really important because it's a way of saying when we find the bright spots amidst the things in our lives that we regret... They just have to be bright relative to the other garbage we're trying to get past. (laughs) They don't have to be perfect. They just have to be bright enough. They stood out in the midst of a dark moment that we think there's something there to continue investing in. Hmm. And that's a choice we get to make. And no one can make that choice for us but us. And I think that's why the commentators in in Jewish tradition really offer both. You could say, no, no, no. Noah got picked because he was perfect. He was really perfect. Like, he was so perfect that even living amongst all these dirtbags, he was perfect. (laughs) Which seems not to be the case for other reasons in the story, I would argue. Right? Because if he was that perfect to go to the end of the story, why does he need to get wasted after the flood and he comes out of the ark? <laughs> right, He was clearly carrying a lot of pain.
4: Mm,
3: and it wasn't yep. so perfect. And he was pretty despondent. And he needs to get drunk. Which is both understandable and never successful. So <laughs> right, truly. that, and unlike Abraham, who, you know, one day we'll get to those stories hopefully, when Abraham is told that God's going to wipe out Sodom and Gomorrah, he argues. When Noah is told that God's going to wipe out humanity, he goes, yeah, but I get a raft, right? (laughs) So it's a funny kind of perfect. I really do think the simpler meaning of the text is actually the first option, which is that, no, he wasn't perfect. His righteousness was in context he was better than those amongst whom he lived. He was far from perfect. In the same way that we can look back on our lives as people, as believers, and to non-believers, and to re-believers, whatever that might look like, by seizing on the parts that were far from perfect but were bright spots, and asking, since that's what I've
4: got to work with in the world, Just like God says, I guess I'm going to have to work with what I got. Because, you know, why not destroy everything? Why work with what you got?
3: I mean, a rational argument might have been, isn't that what got us into this problem to begin with?
1: (laughs) Yeah.
3: Why would I work with the same crappy raw materials? (laughs) maybe that's like the ultimate faith statement since Einstein, I think it was Einstein, the definition of insanity was doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. Well, Maybe this is a kind of holy insanity, a kind of sacred crazy that God dares to say, I'm going to work with the same raw materials, but I'm going to get a better outcome. Maybe that's the ultimate statement of faith we can have in our lives. we can only be ourselves we can only bring what we got but can we dare to believe that with everything that's messed up and with all of our shortcomings as imperfect as each of us is we can
4: actually with the same raw materials get a better next chapter
1: that's beautiful
4: You know? And by the way,
3: clearly it's like a tension in the story because you go to verse 12, when God saw how corrupt the earth was, for all flesh had corrupted its ways on earth, God said to Noah, I've decided to put an end to all flesh for the earth is filled with lawlessness because of them. I'm about to destroy them with the earth. Well, wait. Clearly you gotta go, but God, that's not exactly true. You said you're gonna make an end of all flesh. What do you think I am? You're not making an end of me. So it's like, I'm going to make an end of all flesh, but not exactly. Why would you make that declaration, I'm going to wipe it all out, when clearly you're not going to wipe it all out? Right? I mean, don't we all do that? I'm done with you. Right. Right. And it's a totally reasonable response in a lot of situations. But there's a difference between what is a reasonable emotional response and a smart way to proceed. And again, if I'm going well, Brad, how can you say that? It's easy. I go look at this verse. If it's good enough for God, it's good enough for me.
1: <laughs> right.
3: Right. If God's allowed to say, that's it, I'm done. I'm wiping out all flesh. Well, except for, you know, and oh yeah, by the way, your wife and your sons and their wives. And it's like, (laughs) so I guess when you said all, you didn't really mean all. Well, not really. But the feeling of wanting to wipe it all out is real and it's okay. I think that's part of the story is giving us permission. No, it's okay to feel that. It just might not be real smart to do it. Because those points of light, imperfect as that light might be, they're pretty much always there. And I say pretty much because I want to be respectful of moments when people really can't find them. And I think that's real
4: and deserves to be respected. Hmm. But they're far fewer than we imagine, especially if we go the
3: Noah understanding of yeah, he was perfect in his generation. I Meaning he worked great, but relative to the garbage that surrounded him, he was doing okay. <laughs> in fact, okay enough to rebuild the whole human project off of.
4: And what if we just forget treating other people that way? What if we treated ourselves that way? If we actually said, yeah, I am really messed up. But what if with all that, I'm actually good enough to rebuild everything?
1: Yeah, that's, and and some may argue that that might be the starting point, you know, the ability to forgive oneself, you know, before you are able to forgive others, you know, you you, you have to start inside, you know, you have to start with you.
3: I think so. I think you're absolutely right. Uh, I mean, the social analysis, I think the people who focus on forgiving others don't appreciate you have to start by forgiving yourself. And the people who are into self-forgiveness don't understand, yeah, but it's not only about you. you got to deal with other people, too.
1: <laughs> right.
3: But I think you're right. And I think, you know, again, we're way ahead because now we're in the book of Leviticus. The genius of that phrase, to love your neighbor as yourself, mm. is that that verse actually makes no sense unless you first love yourself. Yeah. Right? You can't fulfill love your neighbor as yourself unless and until you love yourself. Now, if you only love yourself, then you're a very damaged narcissist. But if you think that you can love others without first loving yourself, you don't, that's just not what the verse says.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and a very popular uh, rabbi amongst Christ, uh, Christians, uh, Jesus, uh, felt that that was important enough when when pressed, that that was one of the most important things, right. Uh, commandments. Right. And I... Don't disagree. <laughs>
4: <Right>? <laughs>
3: that ability to be deeply invested in oneself, but not as an end in and of oneself, right? But as the first engine, right? That love of self is the first engine of loving others, because there isn't going to be loving others until you can love yourself. And you will
4: never fully know what it means to love yourself until you use that experience to love others as well.
1: Yeah. Amen.
4: (laughs) Right. And I think that that's, and again, the story keeps
3: building on this because it's so interesting. Chapter 7 opens when the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark with all your households. You're ready. It's expanding. For you alone have I found righteous before me in this generation. And then we're told, of every clean animal, you shall take seven pairs, males and their mates. And of every animal that is not clean, two, a male and its mate. Now, first of all, that verse puts the lie to the idea of they went in two by two to the ark and only two by two. Because the truth is, no, some went in two by two, some went in seven by seven. And I think that's a really important thing because... We do make distinctions. We do privilege some things as better than other things. This is the the language here of using clean and unclean. It doesn't mean physically clean. It means pure. It means connected to what will then be offerings in the temple and other things like that. It's not a moral cleanliness because they're animals. It's not their issue. It's just where they're going to... And yet, you couldn't say, wait a second, if we're rebuilding the world, why are we rebuilding the world of any unclean animals? If, right, if this is a story, which it definitely is, that embraces distinguishing in the world between that which is clean and that which is unclean, and presumably God is on the side of the clean— then why would God not just say, well, just take you know, seven pairs of the clean animals, and now I figured it out. The unclean ones, we should get rid of. They were unclean to begin with, so let's let them go. And that's the point, because God isn't only on the side of the clean animals. You can make choices. In fact, you have to make choices, I think, in this world. There are hierarchies. I don't think all differences are meant to be flattened, and neither does this story. But it would be really helpful if the people who knew that hierarchies mattered also appreciated the
4: necessity of the things that are lower down on their hierarchy. Yeah, Absolutely. Right? It's okay. And we don't have to agree about the hierarchies. Actually, the more
3: important thing would be is whatever hierarchy you construct, will you at least protect some of the things you don't like? You don't do it all. I get it. Seven times as much of what you like in the world. Fair enough. (laughs) But no erasing that which you don't like. That you're not allowed to do. Which is pretty amazing because at the end of the day, this is a lifeboat story. And most lifeboat stories are about what you throw overboard so you can keep living. The Bible's lifeboat story is about what you can take in so you can keep living. That in fact, the only way you can hit the restart button, and Lord knows we all need to hit that button for different reasons in our lives,
4: It's going to be with everything you've been before then. Yes, there's a fresh start, but it's
3: a fresh start with the old ingredients. Maybe that's the mystery of the story is that you could really have a fresh start, but you're going to have to work in all the old ingredients. And that's a radical departure for a lifeboat story. right? Lifeboat ethics, And anyway, it took a philosophy. So what are you going to throw out? Who can you throw overboard? Here, it's no, no, no. If you want a real lifeboat, you got to make room for everything, including the
4: stuff you think is unclean and problematic. Now again, not as much room, but some room.
3: That there's no way out of. I mean, that for me is why this is one of the most important stories in Scripture. Because I think, especially in a world that tells us either there have to be lines and the lines are bright and we know what's good on the good side, and we know what's bad on the bad side, and that's the end of the story. Or other people think, oh no, lines are always very bad.
4: It seems to me this
3: story, very near the beginning of a long set of books that is all about drawing
4: lines all the time, says, yeah, we're going to draw a lot of lines here. But understand this. Even on the other side of the line that we say you're not supposed to cross. It's part of the story. They're part of the picture. And if you think you're ever going to hit the restart button without them, you're kidding yourself. You're not. So, go ahead, Noah. Get on that arc. And yes, by
3: all means, take seven times as much of the stuff we deem to be clean. But you're going to have to take the rattlesnakes and the bees with you. (laughs) And every one of us has things and people we think of as rattlesnakes and bees. The only question is, do we have the bravery of this story to say when, whenever arcs we're building in our lives,
4: we're going to make at least some room for the rattlesnakes and the bees.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And even to take it further, you know, even when we don't see it, even the, the uh, snakes and the bees have a part to play. Yeah. You know.
3: Right. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. It, it, you know, there's there's no getting around that. It's okay. You can really have preferences. Yeah. Yeah. But if you think you're banishing it, that's, I mean, there are other stories where you do, but not this lifeboat story. This lifeboat story is about how much you can get in, even the stuff you don't like and understanding Everyone can start over, but you start over with everything that got you there to begin with.
1: I love that. You know,
3: if we could just run our families that way, how much pain could we have? (laughs) Yeah, no kidding.
4: Oh, gosh. So.
3: So the flood comes and the flood goes and then, because, you know, they are shut up in the boat. One bird goes out, another bird goes out, and the other bird comes back, and it comes back again, and finally knows, okay, I guess we're done now. The bird never comes back. He must have found a place to be in the world. I guess we can get off the damn boat. So they get off the boat. <laughs> and we turn to chapter 8. And Noah gets off the boat, and he builds an altar. And then in verse 21 Something begins to happen that we've never seen before. The Lord smelled the pleasing odor, and the Lord said to himself, Never again will I doom the earth because of man, since the devisings of man's mind are evil from his youth. Nor will I ever again destroy every living being as I have done. Oh, I lost you. I think it's just the video. Can you hear me? Yeah. Okay, good. Then I'm going to keep going. Okay. Yep. Um, And this kind of, it seems to me, continues this theme, because God promises I'll never destroy all of humanity again, because human beings, there's something in them, has some evil urge from the very beginning of their lives. Now, that's pretty interesting, because whether it's obvious or not, any reader of the story knows, well, wait a second. If there's a part of people that is evil from the beginning, aren't you, God, the one who created these beings?
4: Which means God's not apologizing for what God does in the story. But God is admitting, I, I have a role to play. Now imagine when there's been a rupture,
3: if however righteous we think we are, we were willing to say, look, I, I was definitely right. I want to
4: be clear. The other side is so wrong, they're not even wrong. But I do understand that I played a role. Now,
3: again, there are times that's not going to be true. There are times that people are so terribly victimized, right, that that's not true. One of the more obvious examples that it took us a long time, at least in the Western world, to come to grips with is when someone is raped, no, they didn't do anything. And I think it's an important example because as far as I can tell for a long time, people, especially women, when it happened, were told, well, there must have been something you did. No. Hmm. No. Full stop. No. But it would be good for those of us in power, and God is clearly the power player in the story, if when we're utterly convinced we've done the right thing, we would stop and ask ourselves, what did I do to bring this about? I get it. I'm right. I'm me. (laughs) What did I do to bring this about? In this world, in this family, in this church, in this community. I get it. I'm right. I'm right. I'm right. They're wrong. They're wrong. They're wrong. But I'm going to be like God. And I'm going to own that I contributed to this. Because the moment God says that human beings are in some way damaged from the outset, well, you're the one
4: who created them, dude. This is one of those moments when actually genuine
3: belief in God, as scripture presents God, is far
4: braver and more complicated than most of us have been led to believe. This is a God who could say, I think I did the right thing here, but I contributed to this mess. And as a result, I can't ever wipe them out again.
3: I can't. Because others, what is the necessary connection between their evil from the beginning and therefore I can't wipe them out? Why not? If they're evil from the beginning, go ahead, wipe them out. Except that it's just the opposite. It's that, no, 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 if they're evil from the beginning, and you're the one who created them, no, you can't wipe them out because you're implicated. Right. right? Just imagine, just if we took it no larger, well, it's pretty serious, with parents and children. When they get angry at one another. And by the way, each side always thinks they're in the right. And very little can going to ever change that. I say that both as someone who obviously was a child and someone who is now the parent of adult children. But one thing everyone can always do is be like God and say, what did I do that contributed to this? I know it's mostly them and they're completely wrong. But I contributed to this. I know how much healing can come from that. Especially because, in my experience, what the other person needs at that moment isn't for us to fix everything. It's for us to admit that we know we played a role in messing it
4: up. That that itself is so epically healing, it's unbelievable. And, you know, as you hear me say a lot, if God can do it, then we should be able to do it. So, Mm -hmm. you know, and then I, I think it gets
3: even better because that could be the end of the story, right? That would be a perfectly uplifting, great end of the story. But it's not. This is God reflecting to God's self, which is good. But now we're going to see something even more profound, which is God reflecting on that awareness with humans. And that mutual reflection and obligation, that deal that we make with ourselves and with others, the fancy word for that is covenant. Covenant. And this story doesn't end without exploring that covenant. Because it could have been God reflects on God's self, and I know I'm implicated, so I'll never destroy them again. And I'm not going to tell them because they're humans. Let's not get carried away. But In fact, that's exactly what God does. Chapter 9, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fertile and increase and fill the earth. The fear of the dread shall be upon all the beasts of the earth and upon the birds of the sky. Everything within the earth is astir and upon all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hand. Every creature that lives shall be yours to eat, as with the green grasses now I give you these now until we got to those last like eight words or so, that's a reiteration of the blessing that's given to Adam and Eve, right Be fertile and and, 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 and mul- increase and, and you know multiply and fill the earth and everything with the dread on those last few words, all of a sudden is whoa we went from being vegetarians to being carnivores in like eight words. Now, again, full transparency, I'm a vegetarian. But, that, but that's neither here nor there. This is a really interesting moment. Why at this of all moments does humanity, which until this time was purely vegetarian, and now God says, oh, by the way, you can eat meat. What's what's that about? This is the beginning of the first covenant that God will make with humans, and it begins by God saying, "You used to be vegetarians. Now you're allowed to eat meat." We'll see. There's rules that go with it, and why that is. But just what? And again, I would ask you: Does that shift come up in the teaching of the story in the circles you usually have moved through?
1: No that piece never comes up. <laughs> I mean it's a pretty epic shift. Yeah.
3: right? The pre-flood world was a world of vegetarians. Now it's a world of carnivores. And I think what's going on, and this is what lies the heart of any covenantal relationship is. If you were created in my image, God says, I have to give you the power and authority that I've arrogated to myself.
4: Before the flood, you only knew me, God, as a creator, not as a life taker. You have now met me as a life taker. If I'm going to be a life taker and
3: you're created in my image, I guess I have to
4: cede some of that power to you. Wow. And
3: in that sense, I think what you're seeing is that God is exercising increasing restraint of God's power
4: by ceding more power and authority to human beings. Right? If I want you to be like me, and I reserve the right to take life, then I have to cede some authority to you to take life. Which, by the
3: way, is why, I, you know, I, I want to be clear, and I said I'm a vegetarian, which is only partially true, because I'm really, I do eat some fish. So I'm kind of a pescatarian. Um, and there are reasons why in Jewish culture that counts as vegetarianism because in Jewish food laws, fish is like vegetables, it's not like meat. So it's not conscious <laughs> That's totally what happens. Um, I don't judge people who are carnivores. I think it's really a toss-up. I think eating a vegetarian diet is in some ways Edenic, right? I don't want things to die for me to live. But it's actually, to some extent, an abrogation of my own power. That people who eat meat are actually more embracing of their power as humans, sometimes, than I am. Right? I said, oh, no, I don't want stuff to die, so I'm not going to engage the question. Failing to engage the question is not the same as meaningfully engaging it. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Right. Or as or as one of my teachers, yeah, Cass, uh, in his book, The Hungry Soul, which is about the evolution of, you know, Jewish, really spiritual eating, because he goes through Christian tradition, a little bit too biblical eating, I should say. So the thing to remember is that no vegetarian ever took responsibility for the life they were taking.
1: <laughs> That's interesting. <laughs> right.
3: It, 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 my way of saying it is to be a vegetarian you at least run the risk of confusing a default with a victory. (laughs) I like that. I'm not playing the game. Now, I believe it's a defensible position because I don't think it's a great game to play, this business of eating meat. So I prefer not to play it. But I can't dismiss people who play the game. Now, if playing the game, you're just going to the local supermarket and buying shrink-rack meat and not thinking about where it came from, then I think you're failing. But if there's any sense of food law, we'll talk in a second where that begins right here in this chapter, but all the way to people who hunt for their own meat, right? These are all ways of being directly accountable for what you consume. That's covenantal responsibility, So I think there is a shift, and the shift is very much about God saying, okay, you've met me in a new way. The only way you can rise to the fullness of being in my image is if I cede ever greater amounts of authority and power to you and in ways that are proportionate to the power that I've shown you I have. So you've met me as one who takes flesh, so I'm going to let you be one who takes flesh. But doing that is going to require some commitments from both of us. We read before that God says, I'm never going to do this again, so there's a rainbow in the sky. Forget whether, you know, the fairy tale sound of the story, that's not the important point. The moment that God says, I've committed to doing something, I'll never wipe out the world again, there has to be a concrete action taken. The concrete actions. I will put a symbol over all over you that will remind you. And the moment that God says you can eat meat, yeah, but there are rules. You can't have the blood. And so I think this is a really important understanding that rules don't exist in this covenantal system for their own sake. They exist as concretizations. Of the values of the covenant. So, if God's going to commit to never wiping out humanity again, great. We have a right to say, How are you going to show me you mean it, God? I know you're God and your word's good enough, but how are you going to show us you mean it? I get it. We have power and authority in unprecedented ways including the ability to eat lamb chops now. How are we going to prove that it's not just a pure self-indulgence? What are the rules going to be that accompany it? That
4: with every new form of power people get, they also get new forms of responsibility. It's not about shrinking from power. It's
3: actually about taking on more power. But with every new power comes new obligation and responsibility. And that's when the story can end. The story can't end until what was seemingly the all-powerful God seeds some power and has to live with making concrete that seeding. And that we, so-called puny people, are, no, we really like God we can take life. But if we're going to embrace that power, which we are meant to embrace,
4: it's got to come with responsibilities and obligations. That's
1: perfect. Perfect spot. Yeah, and it makes it makes me think too of um I've got I've got friends who are are hunters. You know, it's not personally for me, but Uh, who are hunters who are what I would refer to as more responsible hunters in the sense that they use as much as they can. They don't take what they can't use kind of thing. And, but they've described it as almost a, a spiritual experience in the sense that when they take like a deer, for example, it's, it's an emotional ordeal. You know, they, they realize the implications of what just occurred, like this deer, has, has given its life to sustain me and my family, kind of thing. Yeah. And it's, it's everyone
3: I know who hunts no small thing. that way. It's an absolutely religious experience. And it's funny because, mm. like, I didn't grow up in a home where people kept kosher. But my father loved to fish. And we would go places. There was one restaurant we used to go to as a kid, and they had all these fish mounted on the walls. And I knew that my father would go fishing once or twice a year, and he came back with. Know, coolers full of fish that we then ate for months. And I would wait, why don't you, like, you know, mount some of the fish? They're kind of cool looking. And he said, That's one thing you will never see me do. Hmm. He goes, They're beautiful. They're food. They're not trophies. Yeah. And as a little kid, I was like, I know, but they're so cool. If we go to this restaurant, I see these <laughs> big fish. And they're mounted of the wall. Can't we do that? He said, no. He said, no. He said, catching them is definitely a rush. But they're food. They're not trophies. And he would never go sport fishing, like, for big fish like that. He didn't. No. And it was funny because he never hunted. He had a visceral opposition to hunting, but he had no problem with fishing. But the through line is very much what you said. They're not trophies. And every person I know who hunts, that is their keeping kosher. I would say if I was translating it back into Jewish language, it is the awareness that with the power to take this other life, to nurture my life and the lives of those I love, come real obligations and responsibilities. And it seems to me that that's a big piece of this story. It's not about shrinking from our power. It's about embracing ever greater human capacity
4: as long as there's also ever greater human responsibility and obligation.
1: Yeah. Yep. And your dad understood that obviously. Yeah, I I mean,
3: he felt <clears throat> very strongly. That was funny. I remember I was like, was, I was but they're cool. Can't we have a couple? No. Nope. <laughs> you can eat them. Nope. Nope. <laughs> we're not mounting anything. <laughs> <laughs> and it's funny because uh. we were staying somewhere out in Colorado. When our kids were little. Our oldest was about five years old. And we had rented this apartment blind. And we walked in and there were animal heads all over the apartment. Oh, jeez. And we were a little creeped out. But, like, I'm a big boy. I know people do this, right? But our daughter looked at us. Yeah. Like, almost, she goes, those aren't real, are they? And even though I don't believe it's ever right to lie to <laughs> oh. your kids, 100%, I said, no, honey, of course not. <laughs>
1: I think you made the right move because there, in that instance. there was
3: no way I was going to tell this poor fiver. oh, yeah, those are real deer heads. Someone, you know, chopped them off
1: and put them on the wall. Oh. There
3: was just no way.
1: It, it was a strange practice <laughs> when you put it that way. I mean, I
3: get it. By the way, I get why it's viscerally appealing. It's why this story is constructed the way it is, because it is viscerally appealing to demonstrate yeah. our unbridled mastery. Only it turns out that our mastery is meant to be mastery, but not unbridled.
4: Yeah. 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 It's not an apology for the power we're meant to possess.
3: We are actually meant, that's when people say playing God, and they mean something negative by it. I think playing God is what we're here to do. But playing God means also accepting ever greater responsibility and obligation for whatever it is we play
4: God over.
1: Man, that's good. That's a that's a perfect place to. Uh, okay. I think that's the perfect place to uh, to end today. And then um, where uh, where would you like to pick up next time? I think uh, we have a couple ideas. It sounds like.
3: I <laughs> yeah, I mean, we'll we'll sit with it for a bit and we'll figure it out and be in touch. But this will keep us. This will keep your yeah. listeners good for a bit. So why don't we go with that and let's touch base mm-hmm. in, a, in a couple of weeks and uh, we'll go where we go next. Maybe, I mean, I'm interested in the Tower of Babel Perfect. story and technology, yes. and then we get to yes, Abraham, yes, yes. so we got we got things to do.
1: Perfect. I love it. This is great, and uh, I appreciate you hanging in there through the technology difficulties we had today. Oh, I, by um, the way, I'm 100% convinced the problem was
3: on my end, so I should be apologizing to you. <laughs> All right, okay. I will talk to you soon. Be in touch if you need anything, let me know as stuff gets edited because I will say, as we've shared this with our audience, they have loved it.
1: They're just That's, that, loving that it. makes me so happy. That's great. That is fantastic. So, well, there you go. you are a whole my new love Jewish audience. I Absolutely. love it. I love it. Yeah, well my my love to them and uh and we'll we'll keep this thing going. I think people on both sides are 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 really fascinated by these types of Perfect. conversations. So Okay. Thank you I'll so much, Fred. will talk to
2: you Fred. soon. Be well.